Welcome to Level with Emily. This is music by Peter McConnell for Psychonauts 2, a game from Double Fine Productions. At the time I interviewed Peter, I'd only gotten just a couple, few, maybe three, four hours into the game, and the soundtrack wasn't out yet, so I hadn't even heard all of the music. I've finished the game by now, and now that I've heard all of the music in Psychonauts 2, I can tell you it is, it's so fantastic. It is so fantastic. I wish I could put all of it in this episode. And the game is great too. I had so much fun playing the game. It is a breath of fresh air in its treatment of dark issues in this really light, mostly way. Uh, and it was great. So, but the music, let's talk about the music. Peter starts off talking about how cinematic the game is. You know, cinematic is definitely something we all had in mind, I think, with with with, uh, with Psychonauts 2. And um, the whole game went on quite a journey because, because of course, there's Psychonauts 1, and that's the first game that, that Double Fine did. And uh, that was, Tim was right out of, uh, and and much of the company was right out of LucasArts. And, uh, and uh, it was 2000, and everybody was out striking out and doing something uh the 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 prequels had just come out the star wars prequels and and uh so that sort of marked a, a turning point you might say in 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 the land of lucas arts where a lot of people who've been working there for a bunch of time went out into the world and uh tim and i were a couple of them uh, doing our various things and and so double fine itself was it was literally working out of a garage um in south of market uh, which is a sort of a, for those of you who don't know, it's kind of a quasi-hip industrial section of, of, uh, of uh, San Francisco. And so there was a giant garage door that that you went into to get to the company, uh, which was, in fact, in the garage. And there, <laughs> the cars would park, and then there were lofts, exposed lofts, um, right next to where the cars parked, and that's where everybody worked. And it was, you know, the most bootstrap sort of situation you can imagine. And I'm told that, you know, like there was one employee who had like a, a stinkier car than everybody else, and everybody, you know, would, would give this guy grief every time uh, his car would pull in because <laughs> essentially you had to breathe the fumes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was a very and and that's just a real long-winded way of saying we didn't have a ton of resources to work with, and uh, so Psychonauts One was was uh, uh, we didn't have a ton of resources and 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 maybe not uh, you know the publisher support that we might have liked, and you know untested unproven sort of situation. Psychonauts 1 is a wonderful game and it's so creative and uh, the score the score had to match that sort of whimsy and that sort of all those different mental worlds that you're in but it also had to do it with somewhat limited resources so I know I recorded the whole thing in my apartment uh, and there were a lot of situations where I used samples where I would rather not have.
I'm very proud of that music. It's 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 kind of like, uh, as one of my composer friends put it, it's not look, mom, what look what I did, mods, look what I did with with the time and and resources allotted. Um, so, um, when Double Fine, uh, a much more in a much more mature state, uh, came around and and said, okay, well, we're going to do Psychonauts too. I just thought, well, what a great opportunity to really sort of um, take some of these things where we wanted them to go in the first place. And we also, you know, there was a, it, it was a five year, I think almost six for the company, five years for me mm. of, of work on this game. And during that time, a lot of changes happened, you know, uh, uh, very fortunately for the, for the company, um, Double Fine was acquired right before COVID hit. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, I don't know what we could have all done without that kind of support from Microsoft. And so Psychonauts started out before that time. It had a certain vision. The vision quickly expanded beyond uh, the resources available. And then very fortunately, we were able to um, have the resources match the vision. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to sound, you know, materialistic or whatever, or crass or something like that. But it just really is just absolutely wonderful to be able to work with uh, when you're trying to make a, a, a piece of entertainment, a piece of art, a, a game, and you have an idea of what it can be, it's just so amazing to be able to get close to that idea. So we had, we had the time to do it, and very fortunately, and COVID did uh, present some very serious challenges. I'll, I'll get to that later. But um, we were just so lucky to be able to be doing this and be supported in doing it during uh, a very tough time. Yeah. And uh, I think in some ways, uh, Psychonauts, you know, the subject matter reflects some of the things that we're all going through. And uh, so it was satisfying to be able to really kind of take that uh, where it really seemed like it wanted to go. briefly just all the different types of music and styles just reflecting the moods and, and such that the game takes you through. Talk to me about, you know, kind of knowing what each moment needs because there are so many different styles in the game. I mean, it all started with the characters. So very early on in the process, um, since we had some time, um, we kind of had the luxury of doing things th the way I like to do them, the way we did them on, in games like Grim Fandango. And, and also in Psychonauts 1, we did this as well, which is there was some time for the themes to percolate early on in the process. And um, and so there was a, a period, I don't know how long, not that long, maybe three months or something like that, but but where it's just all I was doing was writing themes and uh, uh, maybe even less than that. But it's a really important amount of time to, to, to spend on the actual melodies that you're going to be working with. So, and that, all those were, were piano sketches. And the way I used to do things, you know, in, with um, Psychonauts 1 and back at LucasArts is I had a handheld cassette recorder, which is a, I still have it kicking around somewhere. It's a nice little museum piece now, but <laughs> now I use an iPhone. But the point is that there, I go through this phase where I'm just humming into the iPhone and playing and, you know, just playing the sketch on the piano with my, with my remedial piano chops. Uh, and so there was a, there was a, a phase of just doing piano sketches. And uh, in this case, I don't think 
think a lot of the piano sketches were just done in the sequencer. But it, the point is that it was just a very bare bones version. So you're just listening to the melody and, you're, and it's only with one instrument and you want to make sure that that melody is, is what you want it to be. Now, when it comes to, you know, style and orchestration and the whole process of making a score was a pretty big puzzle, you know, because you don't have infinite, you can't do everything with a live orchestra, nor do you want to. But some yeah. things call for that kind of epic treatment. Some of them call for a smaller group. Some of them call for like, you know, a folk guitar and a banjo or something, which is, you know, uh, but the way to make it all hang together is to make sure the melodies are consistent. And that's, and so the melodies, that melody phase was very, very important in the early part of the process where I was just, you know, they asked for several characters, let's do a theme for this or, or, or character in a situation such as Ford Barber, for example. Um, once those were kind of nailed down it and we had a period where we could sort of go through things and kind of test out how they were working. I always had my eye out on, well, you know, what's really going to work for this situation best in terms of the sound? Like, how big does it feel? How how dark does it feel? How uh, how grooving does it feel versus uh, something else, a different kind of a feeling that's not so rhythmically oriented? I mean, I'm a big rhythm guy no matter what, but, but uh, you know, there's a big difference between bringing in a drum kit and uh, <laughs> not having one. Uh, so... All those, all those things, uh, there was some time to kind of work that out early on. And um, the original scope of the score was probably a little less than half of what it ended up being. Oh, wow. And the thing was, and early on in the, in the process, we were like, well, you know, this game is going to need a, at least a couple hours of music, and we only really have budget for an hour or so. So what are we going to do? <laughs> And or I think it was an hour and 20 or something like that. And it ended up being, it basically ended up being over three hours of music. But what we started out with was, was less than that. So we had, you know, we're coming with all kinds of ways. Okay, well, if we, if we find creative ways to break the music into little nuggets and then we can repurpose different themes in different situations. And, oh my goodness, I can't tell you how much, how much sort of administrative overhead went into that concept. And, and it did actually, in the end, we still needed to do some of that. Wow. But uh, we were able to do less, very fortunately, we were able to do less of that than, than originally planned because it was sort of like, you ever watched that show Johnny Quest? Remember Johnny Quest back in the day? Yeah. That was like one of my favorite shows when I was a kid and I'm totally dating myself and I don't <laughs> care. But it, it was an awesome show and and because um, it was about scientists, you know, and what can be cooler than that? And, yeah. Uh, except they're like scientist tough guys. It's really, anyway. Johnny Quest was awesome. And they also had this incredible band. At, but they, you could tell that the whole thing was a shoestring budget because they basically took the, they got all these really hot players and they, and they, like, they spent maybe a day in the studio to do all the Johnny Quest music. And then they just kept recycling. I like, oh, here's the scary theme. Here's the creeping around theme. Here's the monster theme. I, and, and it would always be the same. But it was cool because you'd be like, wow. It was familiar territory, and and so that 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 Johnny Quest theory of scoring is, you know, if you do necessity being the mother of invention, you do what you can. So we had a plan early on in the project that we're going to have to do a lot of Johnny Questing, you know. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, uh, when uh, you know about midway through things, or not really midway through, I guess two thirds or or three quarters of the way through things everything changed in terms of we were really able to say, okay, well, this is what the game should be. And this is what we need to score it. And um, so the, the Johnny Quest 
aspect of things went down quite a bit. And, you know, I was really able to make a score that I thought was what it ought to be, you know, given, given the, the whole game itself is very, um, it's ambitious on a whole lot of levels. It's ambitious as, uh, in its subject matter, very in particular, it's got a lot of, of deep stuff, uh, that it's wrestling with. And yet it's also whimsical as, as, as double fine games are. So to capture all that takes, for me, it takes a, a lot of different approaches. So, um, and the way you make it all hang together again is through the themes. And the, you know, the whimsicalness or the whimsy and the comedy and the humor in there is, it's just everywhere, whether it's your instrument choice that makes you laugh or whether it's the, you know, music that you're paying tribute to that makes you laugh. There are so many different ways that you make the gamer laugh with your music. So uh, I'd love to hear you talk more about that concept. Well, thanks. Um, I, I, I do take, I do take humor very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> And so I, I do like to, you know, I think a musical joke is is the is is a, the, one of the funnest things to do as a composer. And Haydn is is definitely a favorite of mine for that for that reason. Going back yes. to the classic, to me, the funniest character of of all the characters is Raz, the main character. He's because he's so so earnest, and and the thing is, in Psychonauts one, his earnestness is almost the butt of humor. But in Psychonauts 2, what happens is the world sort of gets a little darker and his earnestness kind of keeps the whole mission afloat. And so to kind of still enjoy his sort of occasional inflated sense of himself and... Um, but at the same time, realize that, you know, he, he's not just uh, uh, he's not just a kid with sort of grandiose delusions about what's going on there really is an evil cabal trying to take over the world and and uh, that was really fun to play with and, and and you know how specifically do i do that with with raz how do i depict the humor uh, well first of all his 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 instrument is a clarinet No, I mean, I, I, it's one of my favorite instruments. I'm not, I'm not knocking clarinet, clarinets here, but there's a there's a tradition of of whimsical clarinet, especially klezmer, uh, the klezmer tradition, and also the sort of joyful bouncy clarinet, which is a little bit related to that, really. If you you look at someone like Benny Goodman, so the clarinet is always laughing just a little bit, I think. Um, or, or, you know, if not laughing, just it's at least uh, got a little smile on or, or a little wry. That's the word I want. It's a little wry smile.
So there are a lot of cutscenes in Psychonauts too, right? The ton of, ton of, it's about, really the score is almost, I think it's evenly distributed between cutscenes and gameplay, if not a little more cutscene than gameplay, mm. I have to look at that. But um, it's, it, in, in any case, it's pretty close because the, the drama in the game is a big part of the actual game. Obviously one of my favorite instruments, mm -hmm. bassoon, absolutely one of my favorite instruments as well. And, you know, it's like distorted bassoon, which is even more fun. So talk to me about that. Well, you know, we had, we had, we had a wonderful, uh, 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 solo. Well, first of all, the, uh, all the players in Melbourne symphony are just fantastic. So there's a lot of concert, uh, wind parts that are just, you know, stellar. And um, I think I think one of the things that that you're talking about though is maybe um, Paul Hansen, who's a who's a well, I would say local, but he's really a national musician. He's a he's a bassoonist who happens to live in the Bay Area, and he and his thing is electric bassoon. He plays with Bela Fleck um, and Cirque du Soleil, and and uh, he's had you know those are the kind of gigs that Paul uh, regularly plays, and and um, he's and he plays notes that. He plays notes on the bassoon that are just like what? <laughs> a, a, a high C is a stretch for most players, but you just played an F. Wow. Okay, and, and that, that's just—I mean, he he plays it like like it's a, like it's an ewe or something, an electronic wind instrument. He plays it yeah. like a like it, like it has no range limits, and and so so first of all, his his chops are just so incredibly phenomenal, but. He also has this, you know, things that he does with electronics where he kind of jams with himself. And I try to leverage that in some of the, like the, uh, the questionable area, um, that yeah. sort of folk tune that has, that has really righteous uh, uh, bassoon solo in it. some electric bassoon in, in the Bobsy Island too, which is just really awesome. So um, that's kind of a specialty and I'm just kind of lucky to know Paul, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The casino area, that's as far as I've gotten so far. I'm in the ah, casino you haven't gotten to right Bobsy now. Yet. But you I have, haven't. so have you, got, have you gotten to the questionable area yet? That's no. sort of the outdoor area. Okay. Well, you got to get, get to check yep. out the questionable area because you will hear definitely some pretty out there ele electric bassoon soloing nice. um i don't think if there's any before that yeah it's a, you know there's it's a something floor. that happens when you're walking through the um the academy area or wherever that whatever the main lobby area is that's the first time i ever heard it was uh, yeah, at some yeah, point that, that's in there right. 
There is there is a bassoon solo in the electric bassoon solo. I'm pretty sure in the um, intern tutorial, yes. the intern hazing when the, yeah. he's going around in his underwear. Yeah, yeah that's I'm exactly gonna, it. And that tune, of course, that's a that is a rendition of a Psychonauts One campground music. So it, it, that's sort of a tip of the hat to Psychonauts yeah. One. Yeah. Well, speaking of the casino, I mean, this is mm-hmm. the Lady Lucktopus area, and mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to get to hear the track that's actually going to go on the soundtrack mm-hmm. of Lady Lucktopus, Lucktopus, which is amazing because not only does it have all this big band and jazz orchestra stuff, but it's got the Hammond B3 on it, which is such a fabulous and unique organ, right? And, uh, you know, horn trills, all this amazing stuff. So yeah. talk to me about the Lady Lucktopus. Yeah, I really wanted that to be as huge a uh, uh, a ridiculously huge big band number, just you know, beyond huge because the boss monster there is so huge, and um, just almost a burlesque version of something that Nelson Riddle or John Barry might do. As such, and, and, and this sort of gets into our a little bit into our COVID limitation thing, but um, uh, it's it's a it's a actual sort of a world. Uh, effort because um, the the orchestra is recorded in Melbourne, the rhythm section is recorded in Nashville, mm. and the Hammond organ is my friend Andy Burton, who's a, just a phenomenal keyboard player. Who he plays for uh, Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul these days, and um, uh, he previously played with um, with John Mayer and uh, and Cindy Lauper. I think he still plays with Cindy Lauper uh, from nice. time to time. I'm lucky to know some some pretty high power cats, you might say, and um, he is really well. We just were friends from way back and and uh, uh, from from college and have worked together less than we would like, I think, because he's over there in Hoboken and I'm out here. But he's a good buddy and uh, just a phenomenal, as you can hear, just a phenomenal player. And uh, so that was his Hammond organ. That was his Hammond organ in his studio in Hoboken, and, and we did the so- session remotely. You know, where I was just listening in, and he had tracks to play to, and and you know, the same way that the um, rhythm section, um, the Nashville rhythm section, this guy named Keith Carlock, who's just amazing on the drums, and um, that was also done remotely. Um, I do a lot of recording these days remotely because you know, once basically ever since March of 2020 everybody's had to kind of up their game in terms of how to record, how to not be in the same room and still record music. Um, yeah. And uh, so for for MSO, and the, that's the other thing is I'm really lucky to have, there's so much, I can't tell you how much luck is involved in this score, quite honestly, because I have a long-standing relationship with Melbourne Symphony and uh, Andrew Pogson, who is their um, uh, assistant music director. Um, that isn't exactly his title. That's roughly, uh, he's anyway, we we go way back. We've done a bunch of these projects together and he's, I consider him a good friend. And, uh, just to be very blunt, the Australians handled 
Uh, and it's, you know, I, I suppose it's a little bit easier when, when you're Australian, you have limited airports and you're down there, but they handled the COVID crisis dramatically better than we did. I mean, I don't know where, at least at the time these recordings were made, I don't know where you could have gotten 20 people in a room in the United States of America. Don't know where it could happen. And it was touch and go there too. I mean, they had some, they had some sketchy situations that happened and, but they were very, um, you know, they really got on top of the plague. Uh, and, uh, so they, what we were able to do is first, it was going to be only 20 people in a room at one time. We were going to record the orchestra in three sections. By the time we got to the recording dates in, in December, we had two sets of recording dates with, uh, with MSO. One was, um, before, uh, was in 2019. <laughs> that, that, so almost half of the orchestral music was done then somewhere between a third and a half. And then the rest was done in December of 2020. And we thought we were going to have to actually record the, the orchestra in three sections because of COVID limitations. But as think the summer progressed and things stayed reasonably safe in Australia, they relaxed their rules a little bit about how many people could be on a stage at once. If the stage was big enough, it has to do with, you know, how much square footage, you know, that you have in the room and so on. Uh, we were able to get more like 30 people. So we were able to do winds and strings in one pass and brass and percussion in another. Nice. And uh, that actually turned out to be a huge benefit because, um, it made the mixing process. It gave us a lot more uh, control to get, you know, the very best of the winds and the strings, the very best of the brass, and just control levels. Um, I think the the guy, my my colleague uh, Will Storkson, who did the mixing on this project, really appreciated actually being able to work with the orchestra that way. And it also gave us flexibility in the game because um, you can do things like, well, let's play the let's play just the winds and strings until it gets really epic and then we'll bring in the brass. So there's a certain amount of like adaptive music. Uh, uh, Psychonauts is, is, is more about say a, a cinematic feel than necessarily an adaptive music feel, but, but, um, but we were able to do some really nice things with adaptive music that way where, where um, because we had these things in sections, not to mention being able to um, have some, flexibility when all those cutscenes came at the end that we didn't know we had to score. I think at the very end, all of us felt, all of us who are doing audio, uh, I keep saying we because it's, I, I am writing music, but you know, I've got a team of musicians out there and an and, uh, amazing mixer. And then Camden, there's a whole audio team over at, uh, at Double Fine, Camden Stoddard and Paul Rourke and Steve Green. And um, everybody was, you know, scrambling at the end as scenes came in. I was like, oh, Oh, you mean that one's twice as long as it was before? I didn't know that. Um, worked out okay, though. And slightly ironically, I suppose. Uh, I'm always careful about using the term ironically ever since that Alanis Morissette song. Um, the fact that we had to um, had to record the orchestra 
in separate sections had to um, distribute the recording around, you know, around the country, around the world, um, actually was a benefit in the end because we had more flexibility in terms of what to work with with the score. I think we just all feel so blessed because first of all, uh, we're all blessed to actually have work. That's not true of everyone. And uh, not only that, but to actually to be able to do something that we feel good about is an extra blessing. So so I want to hear about the little uh, quote unquote jam session that you had in Skywalker Sound. Yeah, that was a, a little bit of a, a reunion of sorts between uh, uh, Michael and Clint and myself. Uh, who were, we were the three composers at LucasArts back in uh, the 90s. And we also had, all of us had uh, some, uh, Michael and Clint a little more than I, but but um, all of us had uh, a fondness and experience, a fondness for the Grateful Dead and and general jamming music and some experience playing in, in, uh, in sort of uh, jam bands. And so that's kind of, you know that's kind of our comfort zone when when I like my my comfort zone and in, in playing electric violin is is really sort of rock and roll improvisation, and so this particular level, which is really a love letter to the '60s, um, it it's it for me, I really got uh, you know sort of attained my musical consciousness, you might say, when right when that all that stuff was going on. So for me, the music of the 60s is always going to have a special place in my heart. And it's something that Michael and Clint and, and I all shared. So it was a kind of a reunion of, of, of old colleagues and, and, you know, lifelong friends. And that just happened to sort of dovetail with our musical <laughs> inclinations. And we'd all worked, um, in different ways at Skywalker Ranch before I'm, you know, I've been, had done record, recording sessions, but this is the first time I think any of us walked through the musician entrance. And I thought that was kind of fun, you know, get to walk in, in, into the, into that big room carrying a case rather than, rather than into the control room holding a score. Leslie Ann Jones, who's um, engineered us, and that's uh, you know, sure, she's uh, she runs the scoring stage at Skywalker. She she's is a legend. Of, she's and and she's the daughter of, of Spike Jones, uh, not the film director, but um, the Spike Jones of Spike Jones and the City Slickers. For those of us who know certain weird jazz from the '40s and '50s, <laughs> um, you couldn't ask for a better situation to play music in. So yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. And since I haven't made it to that part in the game yet, uh, can you talk a little bit about what that ended up being for? Yes. And actually, before I do that, I do also want to give a, a give a, a shout out to Justice Dobrin, who was the 
incredible keyboard player in that session. Nice. And he put together uh, an Eli Hludzik who um, was a, we, a drummer that that uh, he brought in. Um, he pretty much ran that session um, because uh, I had to be the talent. I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> such as I'm talented. Um, <laughs> I couldn't, I, I just couldn't keep it in my, I couldn't, you know, keep it in my head to sort of actually play and tell what other people do, other people what to do at the same time. So, and uh, we needed the full band as well. So Justice really made all that happen. And, um, you know, play, so he played all those really cool. He, we got the um, Vox Continental from the 60s. So the, this, the stuff that you hear, those keyboards that you hear in that, um, in, in that level, um, are the real deal. You know, it's a nice big Hammond organ and um, this Vox Continental, uh, which was, you know, the sound of the doors and Iron Butterfly and, and bands like that. So we really tried to do, and, and even down to the drum kit, we really tried to do authentic, um, an authentic rigs for this music. And um, the level that it's for is is a character who is um, played by Jack Black, and um, he has uh, lost his senses. He's essentially a brain in a jar, and he's been sort of hiding from the world. But he used to front a band back in the day and that band it was a psychedelic band you know in the 60s early 70s maybe and the the sort of oh gosh i love that level so much and it's 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 a it's it's not only a letter love letter to the music but i, I don't know if you know the um you know the yellow submarine and the artwork of peter oh, yeah. max there's def, definitely I don't, I don't think the artist would be offended if i said there's a serious artistic homage to to visual art from that time uh everything from like the yellow submarine to Sesame street. And, uh, it's so nice to see that sort of colorful world and a reminder, I think too, on a, on a larger level of, of just a really kind of, it wasn't a great time, but it sure was a, a, um, a creative time and a largely positive thinking time. Uh, and, uh, uh, I think that, uh, there's, that being captured in this level uh with this character who's like all of us been trapped and um enclosed uh and as now is just getting back in touch with who he used to be as an artist as, as a human being you know it's like and then and when you play the level it's so much fun because you're you're sort of grooving around in this kind of psychedelic world and you hear jack black saying oh you know oh i i, I can smell the, oh Oh, is that sweat? I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's just, it's just so funny, but it's also really, you know, kind of the way we all feel, I think, as, as we start to go out in the world again after, uh, uh, and, you know, we may have to go back in the old, uh, in the old lockdown again, who knows, but there's so much going on in that level in terms of, of, uh, human experience that, that we've all experienced. And, uh, it was a lot, a lot of fun to uh, to do that, to do the music for that level. Lost alone, neither skin nor bone, just a thought 
is all I've got. I mean, he's got such a great singing voice. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so when uh, Tim and I wrote that song, you know, Tim basically sent me the lyrics and uh, I went and pretty much watched every Jack Black video I could to see, you know, where his range was and how where's where's comfort zone very luckily it's pretty close to mine um so so i i sang the demo for the for the recording sessions and he just listened so uh i mean he just he would listen to my part and then he would do it exactly except it would be him so sort of like me only only um (laughs) what i wish it sounded like I just, you know, he's just got such a gorgeous voice, and 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 he is he is. Um, I mean, honest. I mean, I'm a huge Tenacious D fan, but I just, it's just, it's one thing to kind of you know see it at a distance. It's another thing to really like experience a person employing that that kind of an of an instrument. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's just he's just amazing as a singer and and an artist and a musician. Uh, and so it was a real. You know that was obviously a high point uh, in the whole in the whole scoring process was to actually have him take that song where it really needed to go. And of course, you're pretty much a wizard on anything with strings, so. I do play pretty. I can make anything with strings on it go, except for a cello or a stand-up bass. But, um, okay. but you know, how much, how much uh, making it go is one thing, and doing it well, of course, is another. So. Yeah. Did I hear electric cello in there at some point as well? Maybe with sitar or something. What, what was no, the tune? No, no. That, oh, that, that instrument. No, that's my electric violin. Oh, is it? Yeah. Did you pitch it down, or are you just playing no, it? No, it's it's a five-string violin, so it has a low C. Oh, neat. Okay, yeah. so it's like a almost viola. It is. It is a viola. It, it, it's exactly a viola and a violin at the same time. <laughs> That's and incredible. Electric violins tend to. Um, there are a lot of them that have you know broader ranges than uh, usually lower uh, ranges than because uh, that IE is pretty high. But yeah, um, it's a thing. You know, electric violins with that can go down. Um, like the, I did not know that. Yeah, so like El Shankar ha- plays one that goes down to like an F or something like that. Um, oh, wow, okay. Uh, and um, But because it's electrified, I mean, this is sort of, a, I suppose, a geeky detail, but because it's electrified, the the wood isn't required to produce as much of the resonance, and therefore you can get lower strings and amplify the sound and get a nice rich tone. So. So uh, a five-string ba- uh, violin is—it's—they're not super common, but they're not uncommon. They're, um, and I—I uh, I just love having that low C. Oh gosh, it, yeah. it's so cool. Um, and that—that's so the sound you're hearing. It's sort—it's—it's it's supposed to sound like a cello that part, but it yeah. really is—it's it, just an electric violin played through my, um, played through my uh, my rig.
So did you play other instruments or did you mostly, you know, did you mostly stick to violin and then other people played the other things? Uh, well, there's so much music that, uh, yeah. that both of those things are true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I played, I played the electric violin. I played the, the, the sort of, uh, Roma violin part on, um, the, well, you haven't been to the caravan yet. Um, nope. so there's a, there's a, there's a little folk piece that, um, and I play sort of the fiddle parts. Um, yeah, you're going to, you're about to go into a section that has more me violin on it. five-string banjo I played. Um, I've got a bunch of, it's in the credits. Um, I, I probably the significant ones would be, um, would be violin, five-string banjo. Guitar, I play all the electric guitar parts, um, okay. except except for the killer um, heavy metal solos that Will Storkson played in uh, the Compton Food Level Boss. Um, that's that, a funny story about that. The, <laughs> someone in the Microsoft test department flagged as a bug that there are not enough electric guitar solos, which I think is abs <laughs> it was hilarious. In that particular tune, because Will's playing is so great. And he, there are like five solos in there, but his playing is so great that this guy wanted to hear more. So he played <laughs> Played a bunch of instruments, hand percussion or whatever, voice. I did some voice parts. Um, uh, my family sang. Uh, the kids, my kids sang the, uh, the the song that's in the theme park. And they also in the. Um, rock and roll piece the, that bridge that also has them seeing my kids and my wife actually sang on that it's so good all the music is so oh. good. And of course, I haven't even heard it all. You know, I've heard, you know, however many hours of the game I've gotten right. into and um, the sampler online. And uh, I just, I cannot wait to hear more of it. Yeah, this, so. is, this is my bad for not releasing the, uh, the the whole soundtrack. I'm still editing the soundtrack. So <laughs> okay. why it's not out yet in case anybody's, I think 
people are starting to wonder where it is. It's coming out probably sometime in October. This is really one of the few situations where um, I've gotten to do really what I thought everything that needed to be done. <laughs> but it's not always because it's not always the case, and and you know, and sometimes and sometimes when you get that opportunity, it turns out to be too much. You know, like you overdo it or something like that. And I hope that didn't happen in this case. I, I don't feel like it did. I feel like one of the things that I really liked was being able to work with a ton of the musicians that I had worked with over the years on other projects and kind of bring them together, if not in the same room, then at least on the same tracks. So, you know, being able to work with, with MSO and, and my friend Andy and Paul Hansen and Matt Eckel, who's an amazing flute player. Was in, he used to live in the Bay Area. He lives up north now. I even had um, uh, Seth Tsui, who's a, a a composer. He lives in Beijing now. He played the Arhu part. So we literally had, um, you know, musicians from Beijing to Orlando playing on uh, on on this. Uh, and that just, and I know that's, you know, I know that's more common now, and it's maybe not a big story, but it it just feels really good to be able to bring people together that you've worked with um, over the years and say, you know, well, this this little thing here, it's really special, and I'm I'm, I'm really glad to have my, my friend Hans Christian on the cello. Um, who played on Grim Fandango, uh, who's up in uh, Wisconsin now. So it's just um, awesome to be able to do that. And um, it's kind of like throwing a, a big birthday party or something and, and inviting all your friends. Um, and and I think that was the the most fun thing about it. How can I, what can I do that, that can get all these folks together? And that's what happened. So I'm really happy about that. Great to speak with you as always. And, you know, I just always look forward to what's next. Likewise, Emily. Oh, I, I, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Peter McConnell and see a playlist at patreon.com slash level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hello. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle does our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media, Inc.